Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. I'll be sharing the stories of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, it's Levi Belfield. Bellendfield. Never heard of him. You will have heard of uh, someone he murdered, though. Okay, interesting. Anyway, before we get into it, how have you been? I'm okay. I was just thinking about this. We stupidly spent time together before we've come here. (laughs) So we've had a catch up. (laughs) Yeah, now I have nothing to say to you. (laughs) Well, how have you been? Uh, I'm good. I recently went axe throwing and I came to the realisation that I'm better at throwing an axe when I'm throwing two at the same time. So, one in each hand and throw them at the same time. Fun. Yeah, because when I was doing the one axe, you know, either kept missing the target or it wasn't going in, but I had a higher succession rate. I had a higher success rate when I was doing two at once. Interesting. Yeah. We... We did axe throwing once. It as was well, for your birthday, we? wasn't for my it? Birthday. That was so much fun. I really enjoyed that. Although, um, once again, so my husband is scary good at stuff like that. Like he's not he's not the most athletic person. He's not or like he doesn't play sports regularly. Like he works out, but you know he's not. He doesn't. He's disabled actually. <laughs> like, oh so, yeah, yeah. Um, so he can't stand still properly. But um, he was so good at axe throwing, and I was like, why? And we went, we went. Um, clay pigeon shooting once mm-hmm. he only missed one shot out of the whole time he we built were there. like a viking though he is isn't he just lacking the hair there's bald vikings yeah that's why they got their funny hats isn't it with the horns he could get his head tattooed i wouldn't we put him at the back of the boat though he's a mountain it'll sink mm. or in the middle to keep in the it middle like. i will say one thing though uh, so I went to a nice uh, axe throwing place in York, which offered food and drink and all that, and like proper training with the people there. And it was just start, such a stark contrast because the place that we went to for your birthday, even though it was fun, felt so back alley. <laughs> like comparison, like we just drove out to the sticks and found some random like mobile units in a field, and then you go in there and you just throw some axes. <laughs> exactly what it was there there was a whole like abandoned village wasn't yeah. there i think it was an old raf something it, it looked like a post-apocalyptic like you and know, to be fair the dwelling. guy was just like yeah you just throw it like this off you go yeah that was it but we we the guy the trainer was with us the whole time he was like now we're gonna try this technique and we took all took it in turns and he was like right you and like he told you when you could go and pick up your axe like you couldn't <sighs> But it was fun. But oh, that's no fun. Where's the danger? I want to. I want to. I want to run. I want to race. I want to race your hatchet to the the target thing, the big block of wood. I. I. I don't want to know that I'm definitely not going to get part of my ear cut off. I like my ears. I just got one pierced. Well, I like mine too. Do you I like have, my new piercing? I do. I was looking at it in the car. There's a little like 
bit of scab in there. Is it? Oh, it looks like it's going to be so good to pick off. Oh, like, gonna, just right in there. Do you want to get it later? No. Well, because I can't see it. No, I know, but I, I oh, won't... I think I got some just in. Yeah, I won't pick you. Oh. Sorry. I don't even like hugging people. I'm no, not going to pick you held some. my hand earlier I did. for an extended period of time and I <laughs> felt something. <laughs> wow, this is a special moment because she never touches me. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I will say this. If you don't know this case... Um, I do need to warn you that this case includes a very sad death of a child. So if that's something you'd like to avoid listening to, please do take a listen to another one of our episodes. And we highly recommend Ed Gein or Dorothea Puente because they're our faves. I love the Dorothea Puente episode. Okay, so are we ready? Never. Danny, I can tell you're going to get angry at this one. Okay. So let's set the scene. It's a warm night in London in August 2004. 22-year-old French exchange student, Amélie Delagrange, is on her way home after a night out with friends. She catches the bus around 9.30 but accidentally misses her stop. You know, easily done, especially after a night out. So Amélie gets off at the stop and decides to walk home. A white van begins to follow Emily. The driver is drawn to the young blonde and decides to approach her. At 10.30, Emily is discovered unconscious by a guy walking past on Twickenham Green. She's laying in a pool of blood and both her phone and handbag are missing. Emily is taken to the hospital right away, but she dies shortly after midnight. Emily's head injuries reveal that she'd been attacked with a hammer and she isn't the first one. Marsha McDonald was another victim who died of a hammer strike a year prior. Marsha's case was still unsolved. The link between Amelie and Marsha's deaths eventually connected the dots for the police, leading to the capture of the vicious murderer, Levi Belfield. I've got to stop myself from saying Bellendfield. I hate it when people refer to him as an animal because animals don't behave like that. They kill to survive, not for fun and pleasure. He was born evil. He is pure, pure evil. That's quite savage. But she's not wrong. That's a really good point, actually. I never really thought about that. Like, are there animals that kill for fun? There isn't. They won't do it. I it's mean, Lola has. It's a waste. Of my dog. Well, that's like a hunting instinct, Yeah, that's though. true, isn't it? Um, so that would be, she would eat that. She, If you hadn't taken it off it, she'd eat it. Like, um, it's a waste of energy otherwise, isn't it? Yeah, it is totally instinctual. I've seen her, like, be lapdog. And then sometimes when particular rodents or, like, birds, she just turns into another dog. Like, she's like, I must have that. But, Ter- no, it's but the, the terrier, isn't it? The terrier. But Joe's not wrong. And um, I really, that's a really good point. And I think calling someone an animal is actually quite offensive to animals because... They're actually doing their job. They're just well, yeah. surviving. It's it sort of actually, uh, yeah, and I really thought about it. It implies sort of like a an instinctual, like he was a, he was an animal. He had no choice. Like, you know, not that he had no choice, but like he's an animal. It was in his nature to do that. But it's not. That, that's She's just blown, what, we're, what are we, like five minutes in? She's just blown my mind. I know. So let's go back to the start. Levi Belfield was born in Isleworth, West London, in 1968, and he was one of five children. 
At age 10, Levi's dad died of leukemia. Because of this, he grew super close to his mum, who was a very, just a powerful lady, let's put it that way. Jeff Wansall is the author of The Bus Stop Killer, and he knows more. Belfield was um, very much a mother's boy, much beloved of his mother. It was a close-knit family, brought up in West London, in, the, in, in what was effectively once a huge community of uh, travellers, and was groomed to thinking from the very early days that he was very special, that there was something particular about him. His mother encouraged him in that view. As a kid, Levi was a bit of a handful, to say the least. Here's criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley. I think during his childhood, he was a bit of a tearaway. Uh, he was a, a young lad who, who wanted to do what he wanted to do and, and, and not much stood in his way. So he was often kind of larking around and, and getting into a bit of trouble at school. By the time Levi was 13, he'd had his run-in with the police and he was arrested for burglary. So it's safe to say that young Levi was a little shithead terrorising the community. <laughs> There's so many things you could say, but the one thing you can say is he's a shithead. <laughs> Just age yep. 13. Yep. We've heard this story, haven't we? He was really close to his mum, thinks he's special. And then he turns into a little shithead. And then he was a shithead. Anyway, it wasn't going to be the last time he was in trouble with the police. He would later collect arrests for possessing an offensive weapon in public, credit card fraud and multiple driving offences. And I'm currently thinking of him like as a 13-year-old, just like tearing up the streets. But this is obviously him like growing in for his teenage years, just increasing his like shitheadness. <laughs> when would that, that would have been what, the late... So he's born in 68. Yeah. So from 13, that's quick maths here. 71, no, <laughs> no, 80, oh fuck, I can't do the maths. So this is like the late, mid to late 80s. Can you really like race around in the mid to late 80s? Did cars go that fast then? Of course they did. It's not yeah. an awesome car, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Everything was in black and white back then. Cars existed and cars were sporty, you know. I just, do you know what I think of when I think of the 80s? What? Del Boy Trotter's Car. Oh, right, like <laughs> freewheeler. What was that? A Robin Reliant? That's it. Reliant they look so yeah. dangerous on the road. They, I don't understand how they stood up, stood up. So, yeah, in my mind, Levi's racing around in a Robin Reliant and they've arrested him, but really he was only going five miles an hour. It was safe to say he thought he was above the law and uh, he could do whatever he wanted. Hi, I'm Levi. Levi Bellend. I'll do what I want. Anyway, despite this, he... Um, he was in a steady stream of relationships. And I'm saying it like, the, like my face is screwing up because I I don't see the appeal. I know we should never judge a book by its cover, but... But he was a shithead. And so he was a shithead and he wasn't even a good-looking <laughs> shithead, so... But girls like them bad boys. Girls like them shitheads. Yeah, but they got to be sexy. That's why. It's like you tolerate them because they're fit. I don't know, there's a few of your ex-boyfriends that I'd call shitheads and I don't think they were sexy. Well, it's a good job they and your fucking ex-boyfriend. <laughs> there's a couple of my ex-boyfriends you'd say were shitheads, unsexy shitheads as well. Yeah, most likely. <laughs> In 1989, 
21-year-old Levi was living with a girlfriend and their four children. He could literally charm the birds off the trees. This is a 19.5, 20-stone man with a huge neck, almost occupying his entire shoulders. He wasn't an attractive man. But my goodness me, he had the gift of the gap. And he didn't half use it to his advantage, particularly when it came to girls. Jeffrey is fucking savage. <laughs> a I huge just... neck. He had a huge <laughs> neck. Got me that. that I'm, I've got a little tear in my eye. He was basically saying, Christ, he was an ugly fucker. But he had the gift of the gab. 19, 20 stone, fucking huge <laughs> neck. <laughs> Like that's his defining feature. He just had a massive, he looked like a thumb, massive fucking neck, the size of the neck on him. After that relationship ended, Levi met another woman, Joe Collins. They moved in together and they had two kids. I first met him when I was about 17, 18, because we all used to go to a place in Twickenham called Cellars. But I kind of knew him a little bit before then because where I used to keep my horses, he used to drink at the pub just around the corner and his mum lived just down the road. Everyone knew him. He was always, you know, everyone wanted to be around him. He was like the sort of the fun person to be with, you know, always loud. At the time, Levi was working as a nightclub doorman and he started cheating on Joe. He had the talk, you know, the cuteness. And like I said, I mean, back in the day... He was good looking, you know, always had the nice car, always had nice clothes and, you know, he could he could get the women. But his charm pretty much disappeared once he'd got what he wanted. Here's Liz. In adulthood, Levi Belfield became a, a man that, that women should be quite fearful of. Um, he's somebody who was really entitled um he he had a real sense that women were there to serve his needs and and when they didn't comply with his expectations he would turn violent and very nasty so his misogyny um, and his hatred for women soon turned to joe the abuse started five six months after we got together might not even have been that long just with the odd slap and dig and then he'd be really sorry because he said he'd never felt this way about anyone. I'd found out I was pregnant as well. So it was it was more he he was trying to make out that, you know, he really cared and everything else. But I mean he was still seeing the one he was with before me at the time. Um some of the abuse he'd punch you, bite you, kick you, burn you cigarettes, make you sleep naked on the floor spit at you. You couldn't go to the toilet unless he was sat on the bath beside you. Um, all sorts of things. Fucking hell. Make you sleep naked on the floor. Sit next to you. You couldn't go to the toilet in privacy. That's just... He's stripping her of her dignity. Like, burning her a cigarette. Stop looking fuck. at the spider in the corner. It's not going to get you. It might. There's a spider. It's the tiniest spider I've ever seen. It's moving very quickly. That's all I'm going to say. So we better, okay, listeners, we've got possibly, if this spider keeps moving at the rate it's going, we've got three minutes to record this entire episode before I have to leave. Despite his behaviour towards the women in his life, um, they rarely reported him to the police because they feared of what he might do to them, which is a classic scenario, isn't it? So, But Joe did eventually find the courage to speak to police, but it was little comfort. I was the only one that had an injunction put on him 
and within half an hour of him being served, it was torn up in an envelope through my front door and he'd written on the envelope, now I'm going to kill you. Fuck. Yep, so that was a great result, wasn't it? Jesus, what a reaction. By 2002, Levi had 11 children with five different women. He had started a new job clamping cars. He was that guy and was living in the leafy English town of Walton-on-Thames. Now, this is one of those cases that I actually do remember being on the news. On March 21st, 13-year-old schoolgirl Amanda Dowler, known affectionately as Millie... Oh, no! ...went missing from her home. Journalist Martin Brunt, who followed the case, remembers that day vividly. She was on her way home. She got off the train, was going to walk um, the half-mile or so back to her home. She was in her school uniform, very identifiable. This was daylight busy time of the afternoon, lots of people around, but nobody saw anything. She seemed to have disappeared into thin air. There was CCTV footage of her getting off uh, the train at Walton Station. Some very blurred images of cars and uh, the odd person in the street where she was headed home, but nothing more than that. And it became clear very early on that police were really struggling to find what had happened to her. I remember that being on the news. Yeah, I remember... All the min- time. Yeah, this was like the first sort of... I think this is probably one of the first like big cases that I remember being on the news. We'd have been 14-ish. Mm. Um, uh, but Millie Dowler's name will always like sort of be in my mind because it was everywhere, wasn't it? She's yeah. missing um and yet i can't i couldn't tell well obviously didn't know the name of who killed her and i also actually i think it got didn't this get horribly overshadowed yeah by, and by the it, phone hacking but also it was an unsolved case for quite some time um and i must admit this case because I remember it and I remember how I felt at the time was one of those cases or one of those things that you see on the news that you actually feel like, oh, this is one of the reasons why I was cautious when I it stuck with you thinking that happened to that girl, that could happen to me. And so it made you more like aware of your surroundings when you were walking home from school or like walking yeah. to school. Yeah, definitely. The last sighting of Millie was on Station Avenue in Walton, just 50 yards from the home of Levi Belfield. Six months after her disappearance, the body of Millie Dowler was found by a group of foragers amongst the trees of Yateley, Heathwood in Hampshire, over 20 miles from where she was last seen. So, you know, this was a case that took a while. It took took them six months to actually find her, which must have been fucking horrible for her family to not hear anything for that long but she was identified through her dental record so it was clear to forensic ecologist professor patricia wiltzer that um millie's body had been in the woods ever since she disappeared i was able to tell the police how long each bone had been there and whether how long ago it had been moved because the bones were moved around by animals you see 
But there was no doubt in my mind, really, that she had been there since the early spring. But how she was killed was the real mystery. The police had no suspects and no forensic evidence. But just five months after the discovery of Millie Dowler's body, another young woman was murdered. At around midnight on February the 3rd, (gasps) that's my birthday, 2003 in Kingston, London, 19-year-old Marsha McDonnell caught the bus home after a night out at the cinema with some friends. But walking home from the bus stop, Marsha was attacked from behind less than 50 yards from her parents' front door. So close. I know. Colin Sutton was one of the lead detectives at the Metropolitan Police at the time. Marsha was found on the street where she lived, 10 or 15 doors down from her parents' house. Uh, Local resident heard a noise, uh, heard a whimpering, if you like, um, and called police, and she was found there with this terrible head wound, and, and she was taken to hospital and uh, died two or three days afterwards. Marsha was killed with a single blow to the back of the head with a heavy implement. So what forensic scientists found in the autopsy suggested that the weapon used was most likely a hammer. Then investigators noticed a possible link to similar attacks that had happened in the area the months before. There was another 16-year-old schoolgirl that... um, (sighs) She was thought at first to have slipped over in the snow and banged her head. And it was only then when Marsha was murdered that police looked at this occurrence some um, two months previously and realised that that could have been an assault as well. And they went back to this girl who'd been treated in hospital uh, and were able to talk to hospital staff and look at the description of her wounds and some photographs and conclude that the likelihood was that she too had been attacked but had survived. We found a couple of other offences as well. Again, young ladies had been attacked in the street and hit over the back of the head. And in both these cases, they'd survived. But none of these victims were able to identify the attacker. I suppose if you're being hit from behind, you're not going to see, are you? No. They just, you know, said I was walking along and the next thing I knew, I woke up in hospital some hours or some days later. So... We didn't have any kind of clue or sighting that led us towards the suspect for it because they just simply couldn't remember it. All the attacks seemed to be totally unprovoked, suggesting that they all may have been committed by the same perpetrator. Then, just over a year after the murder of Marsha McDonnell, 18-year-old student Kate Sheedy was heading home after a night out in Twickenham, West London, to celebrate the end of her exams. Just after midnight, she caught the bus to nearby Isleworth and started to walk the few hundred yards to her front door. But something unsettling caught her attention. A white van. The engine was running, but she couldn't see who was inside. She said it looked a bit sinister because it was it had blacked out windows and she just thought it was up to no good. She didn't like it. And some sort of sixth sense or whatever said to her, no, don't walk past that. So she crossed the road so that she would be walking on the other side of the road when she walked past the uh, the people carrier. She heard this people carrier start up, accelerate, and it literally came across the road and simply ran into her, just ran her over. She ended up on the road between the front wheels and the back wheels of the people carrier. 
It then reversed, so the front, front wheels went uh, over her body again and drove off. What the fuck? Oh. Like, that is so fucking savage, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, just the pain of that. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? It's true, though. Like, you do get that feeling, that intuition that something's not right. And she wasn't wrong when she felt some bad energy coming from that that van. And it is sad, I think, as a female. It's one of them things you've got to think about. Oh, yeah. When you're walking home, oh, better avoid that. Better get, walk around him. Better cross the road. Yeah. Hate all that shit. It makes me so mad. But it's so, ne- so necessary and needed, quite obviously. She survived the attack. My God. Ran over. How heavy is a fucking van? Like, ran over more than once. Like, and she wasn't hit by a car. She was run over. Yeah. She went just hit and then she just yeah. fell up the bonnet. She was hit and then the wheels went over her body. More than once. Oh, fuck. Reverse. Like, you reverse to make sure the job is done, don't you? That's the intent. She had terrible injuries. You know, she had every rib broken. She had her liver was, was in two and various sort of injuries that she... She was so brave and she overcame and she ended up going to university and, and, and you know, getting on with her life. I still can't believe it. Oh, my God. Like, good for her. Yeah. Good for her. That's a lot to get over. Even though the attack on her seemed very different to the other murder and all the other reported hammer attacks, for some reason, detectives still believe that they could all be connected. It's similar in its outcome and it's similar in the the area where it took place and the the age and the, the victim, what she looks like and all this sort of thing. It's just the weapon, substitute car for hammer, and it's the same. They ranged in age between sort of 16 and 32. Um, they were all blonde or blondish, and I guess all of them were well-dressed and were quite kind of sophisticated, looked quite well off. Someone who fit that description perfectly was 22-year-old French exchange student Amélie de Lagrange, and just three months after the attack on Kate Sheedy, Amélie was found dead. It was a nice night in August, and she thought, oh, it's not very far, I'll walk. At about quarter past ten, there's a, a young man walking around Twickenham Breen, and there's a cricket pitch there, and he walked across the cricket pitch and found what he thought at first was just a, a, a bundle of rags or a bundle of clothes, but turned out to be Amélie, and she was lying there on the grass, her shopping bag... Uh, with her shopping in was next to her and she had her single wound across the back of the head was bleeding profusely he thought she was still alive at that point um, called for an ambulance he ran to the shops on the north side of the green and alerted people to call police and ambulance and uh, she was taken to a hospital and died an hour or so later of this single wound which which caused a you know catastrophic sort of fracture to her skull and, and, and a brain injury it looked like Amelie had been killed by a blow to the head with a hammer, just like Marsha McDonald. I've hit my fucking fingers with hammers plenty of times, and honestly, I think being hit by, in the head by the hammer would just be the fucking worst. It makes me feel really gross, because it's like, it's a very sort of like narrow point of impact. Yeah, 
isn't it? It's horrific. It's so bad. This whole story is making me squirm. Police were now certain that the killings were more than just a coincidence. We were conscious that there had been a number of similar attacks in the area over the preceding sort of 18 months or so. One of those was the murder of Marsha McDonnell and the other was the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. And as our investigation progressed looking at the Amelie murder, so we realised that we had to look at these previous offences as well. Like all the attacks reported, there appeared no clear motive for the murder. Absolutely no reason for it. None. Simply a, a, a random killing. The most difficult kind of killer to catch, incidentally, because there's no connection. There was no connection between Emily de Lagrange and Marshall McDonald. None. They didn't know each other. They weren't friends. There was no connection between those two and Kate Sheedy. A second senseless murder in the same area struck fear throughout the community. The media were very keen to ask us, is this a series? Are we dealing with a serial killer? Because those words have a particular sort of connotation and, and mean something. And because we couldn't link them formally by DNA or fingerprints, we couldn't really say that. So what we said was that we had a linked investigative series. And what that meant was these offences are so similar in MO and in uh, their location and the profile of the victim that it would be a nonsense to investigate them with different teams. Pressure to catch the killer was mounting, but there was no DNA evidence at the scene of any of the attacks. Colin and his team had almost nothing to work with. Nobody had seen anything. There was no CCTV covering there. She had a boyfriend. She had no other kind of contacts, really, in, in you know, no family or friends or, or, or life history in England. She'd not been here very long. And, and it had all the kind of characteristics of a completely random attack, and they're often the very hardest to investigate because not only do you not have the, the links to, to help you, but also they're quite often those murders that are pre-planned. And when people pre-plan murders, they tend to think about things like CCTV and their mobile phone data and all the other tricks and, and DNA and, and, and fingerprints and things, and all the things that we can use in most murder cases can be absent in pre-planned murders. But for the detectives, it was what was missing that could be the key. Since Amelie's phone was absent at the scene, police decided to trace its location. They were able, from the phone company, to get the information that her phone had switched off from the network, had been lost by the network, if you like, at Walton-on-Thames at a particular time. Well, this time was something like eight or nine minutes after she was found dying on Twickenham Green. And Walton-on-Thames is a considerable distance away and it pointed to the bag with her phone in it having been taken away by somebody in a vehicle. Detectives then searched through 2,000 hours of CCTV and eventually identified, drumroll, a white van at the scene, parked close to where Amelie was murdered. I would be so bad at that job. Oh, yeah, you would. <laughs> it doesn't need any <laughs> you would be absolutely so you'd be, um what was i doing <laughs> that, that would be you miss the murderer completely yeah. <laughs> oh look at that it's outside right there at the window but, oh look what the, what's that woman doing oh. instead <laughs> no. i just missed the crime scene even so there was twenty-five thousand similar vans registered in the country so the police weren't initially optimistic about finding the right one, 
But luck was on their side. We had this file that was, the official name for it is the single suggestion file, I think, where, where people ring up and say, I've got an idea who might have committed that crime. It is, and give, give a name. And we had 129 people in this file. And every one of them had been suggested to us from a former wife or former girlfriend, or even a current wife or current girlfriend. And uh, so we thought, oh, we'll go and have a look through that and, and see if anybody in there had access to a white van and we might be able to kind of shortcut the search that way. This is when the name Joe Collings appeared. She had come forward after the murders were reported and suggested her ex-partner Levi Belfield could be behind it. I was technically with him in a relationship three, four years, but he ruled my life for 11 years, every day. He would drive past my house five, six, ten times a day, constantly ring me. He would walk down the alleyway at the back of my house and he would ring me and tell me what time I put the kettle on, what I was wearing, um, who was around my house, everything. Fucking go away, Levi. Leave me alone. Well, how afraid of someone do you have to be to sort of hear these crimes being committed and think, I know someone who could do that? Like, genuinely, I think it could be this person. Particularly if they're like your boyfriend or your husband. They weren't together at this point. No, I know, but he said that other people on their list were mostly... It's worrying, isn't it? Yeah, like, how afraid... How afraid... She basically told the detectives that Levi had a white van for his wheel clamping business and that he was violent and had a particular hatred for blonde women. This changed everything. I'd always, at the back of my mind, because of how twisted and warped he is, you always think he could go that one step further. I mean, people say I'm as guilty as he is because I didn't come forward before, but there was never enough evidence or enough people willing to say, yes, actually, he did do this, he did do that, because so many people were scared of him. We get the report we've had, which says, my ex-partner, Levi Belfield, is a very violent man. He has got a hatred of women, particularly blondes. I found a, a magazine where he stabbed through all the photographs of blonde girls in it. He's very weird and it's just the sort of thing he'd want to do and he's now works as a wheel clamper and uses a little white van to do it. So, oh, you know, that's that's exactly what we're looking for. Somebody who's got a small white van. So let's try and progress that. I learnt from a very young age, I think we all have learnt from a very young age, that if you snitch on someone, you're probably going to get the shit beat out of you because there's that time between the snitching and the punishment in which that person is like, where did you grow up? The mafia? No. What? Right, okay, you know when you're at school and you get bullied, if you got bullied at school or someone was picking on you, you'd be scared to tell on them or say something. Oh, no, I was a fucking rat all the time. This person did this. But, like, for actual, like, bullying, I would never went to my teachers about it because I was worried about the consequences of me telling on them. Because I was bullied in high school. Yeah, I know, I never told a teacher, but I'd tell, like, my mum or whatever. Yeah, but I... Like, you were worried about what would happen. Basically, people did not want to report it. I think it's unfair that people said that she's partly to blame because she didn't say anything earlier. Because if you are scared of someone, it's like, what do you do? There's that weird period of time, like, I've told on on you, like, I've reported you to the police, but I'm scared of you. It's like, you can't win, can you? But also, I think there's, like, 
it, like I said, it must take a lot for somebody to to actually be able to think to to know a person that well, or like to be that afraid of somebody to think, yeah, I think that they could be a serial murderer. Mm-hmm. There's like, yeah, he's a bad person, he's abusive, but that's different to, yeah, I think that he could be a serial killer, isn't it? And that might, I, I, I can totally see that taking a while to sort of, just to really come to terms with that enough in your brain to, because if I was to say to you, I think Baker's a serial killer, you'd be like, ha ha, you idiot, why? Like, lol, what a joke. Like, to actually be able to formulate reason enough to make it sound plausible to someone else who doesn't know this person as intimately as you do and who hasn't this person because also like he's been stalking her he's essentially been stalking her for 11 years of her life we've talked about coercive control before Mm -hmm. but like he's been controlling her and there's nobody to do anything like unless the stalker that stalking might not have even been a crime then but like uh you know what i mean like it's a lot there's a lot of things that someone can do to you without consequence actually this is what i mean yeah by connecting the dots colin and his team could link levi to another car the car that had ran kate sheedy down one of the times that he was arrested was in may 2004 when he was arrested for kidnap which was kidnapping the landlord of a pub near where he lived in West Drayton. And nothing happened about it, and the landlord in the end said, oh, no, it was just a prank that went wrong, don't worry about it, didn't want to press charges, no charges were brought. But the crucial thing was that that arrest took place, and that abduction took place, indeed, in a vehicle, and that vehicle was a white Toyota Previa. Kate Sheedy had been attacked in Isleworth, not by being hit across the head, but by being run over by a large vehicle. And she said that this vehicle was something like a Ford Galaxy. Of course, that's exactly what a Toyota Previa is. Right, people, carry out. That was actually on my drive about two weeks before he ran Kate Sheedy over with it, only because he asked me if he could leave it there for a couple of nights, and I begrudgingly said yes. And he got somebody to go and do a check on the number plate of the Previa that Levi had been arrested in, and I remember her saying to me, Governor, I think we might have hit the jackpot and said it was white. We now had somebody, Levi Belfield, who had the right kind of white van that was used at the time Emily Delagrange was murdered and the right type of vehicle at the time that Kate Sheedy was run over. That's a well ugly car. But Levi was now the prime suspect. At dawn on November 22nd, 2004, police raided his home in West Drayton. In the attic is a naked Levi Belfield. He'd covered himself up in the hope that no one would find him. Well, they did, and indeed the sergeant got him down and duly handcuffed him. Of course, he said to us, oh, I was only hiding because I thought it was a gang, I thought it was... Somebody after me. Well, it was somebody after you, Levi, but it was the murder squad. <laughs> Why was he naked? Because <laughs> it was early in the could, morning. Because he could camouflage there. I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm a mannequin. I was just like, the way that he dropped that in there, he was like, they were like, oh, he covered himself up. He was naked. But like, is he naked because it was dawn and he was sleeping and he sleeps in the nude? Or was he naked because he was hiding? Because <laughs> 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 they're very different scenarios, aren't they? <laughs> Oh, right. So he was his naked body in With the his attic. Thick neck. With his thick <laughs> neck. Giant neck. Giant <laughs> naked neck. 
was found and he was interrogated by the detectives about a long string of offences ranging from rape to GBH. He refused to answer any questions and at one point he even turned his back on the investigators. Rude. He was remanded in custody for almost 16 months until March 2nd, 2006, when he was formally charged with the murder of Amelie de Lagrange and the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. The murder of Marsha McDonnell was added to his list of charges on May 25th. Levi's trial began at the Old Bailey Criminal Court on October 12th, 2007, and he pleaded not guilty on all counts. Levi Belfield's trial for the murders of um, Amelie and Marsha was very long, very drawn out. He was an imposing figure in the dock, big, tall, but it was his manner throughout it that I think drew most attention. He looked very bored. Uh, he did give evidence. Uh, there were glimpses of the charm, in a way, when he was talking. There was a point where he was explaining how you can be a successful wheel clamper. I'm not suggesting he charmed the jury, but I think some of them might have found him captivating uh, while he was talking in those terms. But he also had a very squeaky voice that, again, was at odds with this rather physically imposing man in the dock, denied any of the charges, and uh, you got the impression that he felt that he would be acquitted at the end of it. But... The evidence weighed heavily against Levi. They found 20 or 30 sightings of this van, separate bits of CCTV, and that's when we built up the picture of this van circling Twickenham Green, effectively, and driving around for a period of something like 45 minutes before Emily was murdered. Hunting, no other word for it. You know, it was cruising a very small area, looking for people to, uh, to approach. On February 25th, 2008. Levi is found guilty of the murders of Amelie de la Grange and Marsha McDonnell, as well as the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. Judge Mrs. Justice Rafferty sentenced Levi to life in prison. He was sent to Woodhill Prison and will never be released. His modus operandi, according to the police, was that he got very angry if he approached a young woman that he was attracted to and felt rejected by them. And uh, it is suggested that this is what happened in the case of the two women he killed. It's like he's got, like... It's like he has, like, a really, really sped-up scenario in his brain, like he's got angry about something that's not even happened. So he's looking at someone that he really like, likes the look of. He's told himself that he's been rejected, and then he attacks them. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Uh, it's like a... It's just a, like he looked bored in the courtroom and stuff like that. It's just well annoying, isn't it? Mm. The day Levi received his sentence, he was named as the chief suspect in another case. This was one that stunned the nation as it had remained unsolved for nine years. The murder of Millie Dowler. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence, particularly the fact that he had been living uh, close by, within a couple of hundred yards of the place where she disappeared. It was established that he had use of and had used on that day his partner's red car, which matched one that was found in CCTV of the scene. But then there was the evidence of his partner, 
who said that Levi Belfield had got up in the middle of the night, the night of Millie's disappearance, and had made an excuse to go back to that flat. And when she later went to the flat, she discovered that the bedding had disappeared off their bed. And he said that uh, the dog had fouled uh, the bedspread um, and he'd had to burn it. Now, that was quite compelling evidence um, for the jury, and they were convinced that he was the killer. On March 4th, 2008, an ex-colleague of Belfield, Kelly Fry, told ITV News that Levi had confessed to her about murdering Millie back in 2002. He pointed out a flat in Walton and said that he used to live there and that he'd lost £900 in rent that he'd already paid because he had to move out. And he said, oh, yeah, I also set fire to Emma's car. And I said, well, why would you set fire to your girlfriend's car? And he said, because I took the girl. That was his exact words. And immediately I just knew that he was on about Millie. If I, for one minute, thought that it was true, then I would have come forward a long, long time ago. There was no forensic evidence. There was no smoking gun anywhere. They had to build a case with, with what people had been saying, with little facts, with phone evidence they had, with what CCTV they had, which wasn't particularly much. The whole thing came back to us knowing what Levi Belfield had done on the night that uh, Millie Dowler was abducted. Levi had been questioned about Millie Dowler during the time he was arrested for his other crimes but refused to comment. But one person was certain he'd murdered Millie, his ex, Joe Collings. He said that he'd never been to Yateley and he had nothing, no knowledge of the area. Well, out of all the photographs, and I don't know why, everything I had I threw away. And I found an envelope and it had two photographs in it and it was two of me and him at Yateley which is really bizarre, and I'm a great believer of everything happens for a reason, and I wasn't meant to throw those pictures out because they were needed. And, of course, they showed him in Yateley, so he knew where Millie was found. He knew exactly the lay of the land because we used to go there all the time. On May 10th, 2011, three years after his first trial, Levi was once again in the dock at the Old Bailey, this time charged with the murder of Millie Dowler. He pleaded not guilty and refused to give evidence in his defence. Geoffrey Wansell was, of course, in the courtroom during the trial. What's striking about Belfield is that he wanted to put every witness through a real ordeal because he never once pleaded guilty. He wanted them all to suffer, and he particularly wanted the Dowler family to suffer. It was as though he was smirking to himself, look what I'm putting you through. He sat there absolutely silent throughout this fierce cross-examination, utterly justified, I'm not criticising at all, in fact, it was perfectly justified. Belfield made it happen. He made it happen by not pleading guilty and he made it happen by instructing his own defence silk, his own barrister, to pursue the Dowlers to the full extent he was possible of. And he underlines just what a malicious, malign, evil man he is. On June 23rd, 2011, the jury found Levi Belfield guilty again. Judge Mr Justice Wilkie sentenced him to life on top of the one he was already serving. In 2016, it was reported that Levi had confessed to the murder of Millie Dowler, giving gruesome details of how he'd abused and killed her. Then, shortly after... He retracted the admission 
causing the Dowler family even more pain and grief. Makes my blood boil, I don't know about yours. Like, well, also during that time, they had enough to deal with. Because obviously, um, Millie Dowler, there was the whole scandal about the news of the world hacking her voicemails, um, which gave her parents false hope. Because her voicemail inbox got full and they deleted some voicemails to make room for more. So her family were then got their hopes up. Oh, fuck. Yeah, it was the, that's, so that's what I meant when I'm earlier when we, thing, yeah. yeah, earlier when I was saying that sort of what happened to her got really overshadowed by this whole scandal. Mm-hmm. I think so. I, and I think that was before, was that during the trial or before the trial? I, I don't really know the timeline, but, um, yeah, like those parents never got any peace, mm. and that's it's it's cruel. It's cruel and unusual and horrible. Mm. Levi Belfield is now serving time at Franklin Prison. He has now converted to Islam and calls himself Yusuf Rahim. In letters written by Levi from his cell, he claims that he has never confessed to any of the crimes and he still maintains that he is not guilty. And he says, I'm innocent of all my convictions. I have witnessed and done things I truly regret, but I'm no killer. My life's all led to my wrongful convictions. I blame no one but me. The real victims are the victims of the families of these crimes. I am sincerely sad for their loss, but I am not a victim. My life still put me here. My choice, my fault. I don't really understand what he's trying to say there, but pff, whatever. But he's trying to say he's a shithead. Yeah. And we all and know, we all know it. He and has he, been he's, since he was 13, so. Was a shithead, still a shithead. Always a shithead. But the people that know Levi or knew him, they refuse to believe his innocence. Levi, evil, or blends into one. Um, I've always said it before, I hate it when people refer to him as an animal because animals don't behave like that. They kill to survive, not for fun and pleasure. He was born evil. He is pure, pure evil. She's just blown our minds again. She's on it. Levi has the same letters as evil. I like her. Oh, my God. Yeah, let's be friends of her. Poor woman that she's had to carry all this round for her whole life. I hope that she's okay. Belfield is a psychopath. He deserves utterly to be in jail for the rest of his life. He's a preening, vain, manipulative, smart, deathly man. And if anyone deserves to be called evil, it's certainly Levi Belfield. That was Levi Belfield. What a ride. What a ride. Carl, that was interesting, that one, actually. Although... You can't hear a nod, can you? No. I am nodding. Helen nodded. Well, if you're still here, thank you for... uh... (laughs) To that one person that's still in the room, shall we go for a pint now? (laughs) You deserve a beer. You deserve a beer. For sticking with us through all of that. (laughs) That We went on a journey. Um, The spider, just update. The spider's gone. Uh... (laughs) right i told you not to do that you're a dick who's being a shithead now helen anderson where is it it's not on me is it it's not behind me don't even try that that's not funny what have i done yeah (laughs) 
Okay, right, just quickly, we've got a news flash. We're jumping right in to this podcast because it's 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 come to light that Levi Belfield, he's applied to get married. And it's all over the news right now. So literally, this has come out three hours ago. Uh, but since recording uh, the episode... Yeah, it'll be a few days. Applied to get married in prison. So according to Article 12 of the Human Rights Act, uh, he has the right to have his application considered and get married if he's permitted, which is mad. I just... Who would want to marry a serial killer and also marry a serial killer that you look like the type of person... He'd want to kill. Yeah, so get this. Uh, his wife-to-be is a young blonde woman, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? It does. Um, I know she's, like, not in harm's way because he's in prison. But also, why would you want to marry someone that's in prison? Not particularly have, like, a happy matrimonial life together. Not going to be going on a honeymoon soon. Or, like, you know, living together. What's, it, it's, it's odd, Pointless, isn't it? Isn't it? yeah. So former Justice Secretary Robert Buckland has made a good point that Millie Dowler never got to see her wedding day. Mm. It cannot be right that he gets to have his. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I'm looking at Sky News and it's saying Boris Johnson is sick and appalled. Yeah, (laughs) that's the first time I've ever agreed with him. Decent (laughs) things that Boris has said. Oh my God, yeah. Apparently, also, just one last thing, he got down on one knee to propose to the woman who began writing to him two years ago before becoming a regular visitor. Uh. So we'll we'll wait and see. To be... We don't know whether the application is going to be approved or not at this stage. But isn't that wild? It is wild. And it's... it's, Excuse my French, but that's a bit fucked up. But I'm going to go take a nap because my my tired brain cannot be dealing with this information. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. Uh, Sweet dreams. Yeah, thank you. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. Anyway, next week on Devils in the Dark, with me, Danny Howard, and only me, Danny Howard, because Helen Anderson is being left behind to be eaten by spiders because she's a giant dickhead. We'll be looking at the most infamous serial killers and cannibals in history, and you know the one, it's Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah, me too. Make sure to subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. And we would love it if you could leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Only if they're nice, though. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in the episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios. Bye!